This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Yes, we have no bananas. We have no bananas today. We string beans and onions, cabanas and scallions, and all kinds of fruit and say We have an old-fashioned tomato, Long Island potato. But yes, we have no bananas. you think of a better way to welcome in the 20s than a, a tune from the 20s? Although in this case, yes, we have no bananas, dates to 1923, and my God, we're going to do the 20s over again. I, I'm a little horrified by this because, you know, for my whole life, when somebody referred to the 20s, well, you knew what they meant. Mr. Millen suggested for the 20, 20s, we redo the song. Yes, we have no privacy. Now, there are some advantages to having a lifespan spanning many decades, especially if your memory's intact and you can remember some of the earlier ones. Well, it turns out I can, and I can remember these 60s very well, but it, it freaks me out a little bit to contemplate that, well, if you turn the clock back another century, start in the 1860s, well, that was the time of the Civil War. And if you look at the scope of American history from that era up till, you know, the conclusion of World War I, 1918, and then starting those roaring 20s, well, that's quite a span. And it, I don't know, it bugs me somehow to realize I've, I'm now spanning a similar time frame. Anyway, I guess it's nice that nobody else explained to me who Irving Berlin was. We talked about Irving on last week's show, and I, I came to realize that undoubtedly a significant percentage of our listening public was unaware of who Mr. Berlin was. Well, anyway, time marches on, and the only thing constant is change. And speaking of that, on this program many times over the years, we've talked about how there is one thing you can count on every time. That is the night sky. Yes, it changes very slowly, but I'm sure if you brought Aristotle forward in time and took him out at night to a nice dark skies location and had him look up, he would have no trouble identifying what was what. He might notice, well, that's a little bit different looking, but basically the same. Well, I, I've, I've talked about how that's kind of a cool thing, that unchanging aspect of, of our sky, but, well, I'm disturbed to note that that's less true than I have alleged, at least in the case of what I consider to be my personal favorite star. When I was a boy and I, I learned there was a star called Betelgeuse, I, I was taken right away. Any star named Betelgeuse has to be pretty cool. And it was first pointed out to me in the sky, I thought, oh, no, it is cool. That is, that is the reddest thing up there, just about. Well, Mars qualifies as red and probably even a little bit more brighter red than Betelgeuse. But hey, if you take the time to check out the list of the brightest stars in the heaven, you will find out that it is numero uno among red stars. At least up until October. Astronomers around the world started noticing something odd was going on with this most notable of red stars in that it was getting appreciably dimmer. And, my dear listener, if you have any familiarity with the constellation of Orion, considered to be, well, the best of the best, Scorpio gives it a run for its money, but, hey, you know, it's pretty blue-chip constellation, Orion, well, with its very dramatic bright belt and all. 
But if you go out and take a look tonight, and I, and I hope you do, you will notice something odd. If you're familiar with what it's supposed to look like, you'll notice that it's not looking right. Beetlejuice is no longer numero uno among the bright red stars. If you look at Aldebaran, which is technically an orange star, but it's orange red above it, you'll see that it is now outshining Beetlejuice. Look to its left, the Gemini twins, Castor and Pollux. The brighter of the two is Pollux, and Beetlejuice is dimmer than it. Now, I realize most people couldn't care less about this little oddity in the sky, but when I first went out and looked up, it just about made the hairs in the back of my neck stand up. It's just not right. And, of course, it's generated all sorts of headlines about how Beetlejuice may explode. And the fact of the matter is, Beetlejuice is pretty clearly going to explode one of these days. Of course, when astronomers say one of these days, they mean could be tomorrow, could be 100,000 years from now. Yes, and because it is something like 600 light years away, if it blew up, say, in the year 1850, well, it's going to take another 400 years for the news to get to us. There's some out there that hope it does blow up tomorrow. And, you know, and, and it might. If it does so, it will be visible, easily visible during the day. It will be as bright as the full moon, only it will be one tiny little speck in the sky that's putting out as much light as a full moon. Oh, make no mistake about it. This is going to be dramatic. Betelgeuse is a very big, hot star, and big, hot stars burn through all their energy pretty fast, and then after they run out of hydrogen, they start converting helium and lithium and other things higher up the periodic table by way of nuclear fusion. By that point, the star expands out into a giant. If you put Betelgeuse where our sun is today, its outer atmosphere would extend, they think, somewhere near Jupiter. And a star that's behaving like that is getting near the point where it all of a sudden runs out of fuel. It runs out of fuel when it gets up to iron. You can't fuse anything higher than iron, and so when the core turns to iron, bam, it collapses. The energy halts, gravity takes over, things come slamming back down, and kapow. A star in its death throes, is like Betelgeuse, is going to be pulsating, getting bigger, getting smaller, getting brighter, getting dimmer. In fact, the fact that Betelgeuse has this little trick of getting brighter and smaller was known to the ancients. The aboriginal people in Australia were aware of it. So it's been doing it for a while, and they continue to do it for a while. I was intrigued in my reading to find that Chinese astronomers in the first millennium BC thought Orion looked yellow to them. Now, current models of how stars go kaput at the end of their lives does allow for the possibility that It could have been yellow as recently as a couple of millennia ago. If you look up in a star chart, you'll see that Betelgeuse is listed as Alpha Orionis, the brightest star in Orion, with Beta Orionis being Rigel. But these days, as bright as it gets, Betelgeuse never is quite the brightness of Rigel. So there's some mysteries here. One presumes the ancient Greeks could correctly tell which star was brighter than another. But I have another mystery on that very topic, which I'm going to save because I've gone a little bit too long on this particular item today. Although before I leave the subject of astronomy, I want to note that apparently that Mars quake detector that we landed on the red planet has found a couple of shakes that they're thinking came from an area on Mars known to have cracks in its surface. So what do you know? It appears Mars is seismically active, even though it does not have the plate tectonics that we have here on Earth. They're going to find out some interesting stuff about that in 2020, and when they do, we'll, we'll talk about it, at least a little bit. And you know, science topics are pretty darn near our favorites here 
on this program because science seems to always be uncovering really cool stuff. Here's one I stumbled upon 25 years ago, which I saved, and it's going to come in handy right now. Back in 20, back in 94, Discover Magazine to look, took a look at how volcanic explosions can affect the Earth, at least in terms of weather. And in this article in Discover, they noted that there was an ancient South Pacific legend. It said that some time ago, during the childhood of Chief Tongoa, in uh, the island chain, at, which is today known as Vanuatu, the island of Kue was broken in two, creating the islands of Tongoa and Epi. Early missionaries heard about this legend, but discounted it. But in the 1960s, archaeologists found that some of its details such as the locations of the chief's grave, were accurate. Volcanologists got involved, and they suspected that a volcano might have blown off at some point. And what do you know? They found the entire seafloor between Tongoa and Epi was a seven-mile-wide crater, the remnant, apparently, of a gigantic eruption as, pow as powerful as two million Hiroshima-type A-bombs. Vegetation charred during the eruption was carbon-dated to be between... 1420 and 1475. When they heard about this at JPL, scientist Kevin Pang decided he, well, he decided that an eruption that powerful must have affected the world's weather, so he looked at historical and weather records for signs of it. Ice cores from Greenland and Antarctica, Pang found, showed that a large amount of sulfuric acid, which is commonly produced by volcanic eruptions, had snowed under the ice caps between 1452 and 1460. Tree ring records from right here from California, as well as Europe and China, further narrowed Pang's search. They showed evidence of cold growing seasons. The rings were narrow and damaged by frost from 1543 to 1455. Records in China revealed the harvest had been bad all over back in 1453 and 1454. Pang concluded the eruption probably happened in 1453, which... Fans of history must recall is a very significant date in world history. We'll give you a moment to scan your memory on that one. And I'm sure after thinking about it a second, all of you said, oh my God, of course, the fall of Constantinople. Now, Constantinople, the, the remnant of the Roman Empire, survived a thousand years after the fall of Rome. The empire pretty much, you know, the action had all moved to the east. And its, uh, you know, fortifications survived siege after siege. But in 1453, wouldn't you know it, Things were particularly bad in Constantinople. In April and May of that year, the city's residents faced unseasonable thunderstorms, hail, and drenching rains. On May 22nd, there was a terrifying lunar eclipse, which of course had nothing to do whatever with the volcanic explosion. But four days after that eclipse, on May 26th, fog enveloped the besieged city. When it lifted in the evening, the defenders saw strange lights in the domes and windows of the buildings. The Hagia Sophia looked as if it were engulfed in flames. Now, in fact, that great cathedral wasn't damaged fire, fire, so whatever the Byzantines saw was an optical illusion. Pang blames it on the eruption on the other side of the world, noting that after such an eruption, the twilight is intensely red because of selective attenuation of light by volcanic particles. Undoubtedly, many of you remember that exact phenomenon taking place back in 1992. Sunsets were beautiful for about two years after the eruption of Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines. And in fact, the effect all those sulfuric acid particles had on global warming probably flattened the curve a little bit in the 90s, and uh, uh, 
gave ammo to those who would like to deny that the thing's taking place at all. Although, by now, it's clear that it is. Anyway, a volcano explodes in Vanuatu and halfway around the world in today's Turkey. Bad crops and, and less food to eat uh, it hastens the fall of Constantinople. Well, it's very plausible. And leaves us in a very odd way for the coming 20s, hoping that somewhere in the world, some volcano is going to blow up, put a lot of sulfuric acid up in the stratosphere, and for a couple of years, give us some relief from the heat. This is a hell of a thing to have to hope for. Another article on this very topic I stumbled upon, which came out only a week ago, was the fact that looking back, we now think that uh, some very bad weather that took place about the year 536 A.D. probably has to do with a volcanic explosion in Iceland. Back in the year 536 A.D., much of the world went dark for about 18 months as a mysterious fog rolled across Europe, also the Middle East, and parts of Asia, even into China. Like the 1815 explosion of Mount Tambora in Indonesia, which is the deadliest volcanic eruption on record, in terms of death toll and havoc wreaked, uh, well, this eruption also was big enough to alter global climate patterns, also causing years of famine. Pretty terrible thing to have to sit back and realize that since the nations of the world appear to be doing next to nothing to combat global warming, at least anything meaningful, there's a lot of talking going on, or at least there's, even, there's a lot of talking going on in some circles. Here in America, well, I guess we joined with Saudi Arabia and Brazil, the American government did to uh, to try and you know put the kibosh in any any sort of resolutions coming out of the most recent climate summits. And I'm horrified to realize that it was only a few years ago when we reported on this program that the carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere had broken through that 400 parts per million barrier. That was only a few years ago, and we currently stand at 415. And I forget the, the time frame on this, but I believe it may have been in the last decade or perhaps 15 years that uh, studies have shown that we put as much CO2 into the atmosphere as we had before that, since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Anyway, new decade coming up. Let's, let's, let's hope we can do better. Hope does spring eternal. I think at this point, you need to take a radical turn away from global catastrophe into something, well, light. What could be more lighthearted than taking a look at uh, those wonderful islands anchored out in the Pacific known as Hawaii and <laughs> one of their favorite instruments there in those friendly islands? I'm referring to the ukulele or the ukulele or the ukulele. My grandpa, who was from Hawaii, I, I think referred to it as the uke, ukulele. So even if it's not correct, that's the pronunciation I'm going to go with. I'd like to take a moment to plug the efforts of uh, Gary B. Good on KDVS. He, Gary had a show for many years talking up Hawaiian music and playing some delightful examples of same. We talked to him some time ago on this program, many years ago actually, which I'm sure is available on our website, radioparallax.com. And I wish Gary was here to help me at the moment with this this story, but I'm going to go to... The Uncle John's Bathroom Reader, because we've been doing a lot of that in the last couple of months, and Uncle John always has some cool stuff in it, and tell the story of the uke, which is that on August 23rd in 1879, a British sailing ship named the Ravenscrag pulled into Honolulu Harbor 
carrying a group of newcomers to the Hawaiian Islands, 419 men, women, and children from the Portuguese island of Madeira. Also, a small guitar-like instrument called the machete. Over the following decades, that little instrument would evolve into the signature instrument of the Hawaiian Islands. Madeira, an eastern Atlantic island about 500 miles southwest of Portugal, was settled by the Portuguese in the 1400s. Somewhere about 1850, musicologists say, the braguinha, a small four-string guitar-shaped instrument, was introduced from Europe. It was known locally as the machete and became a popular instrument in the island's rich musical culture. In 1879, when the British sugar growers promised good wages to laborers willing to work in the cane fields of Hawaii, thousands of Portuguese took up the offer, and they brought their music with them. As the story goes, four men from the Raven's Crag started it all. Woodworkers Manel Nunes, José do Espírito Santo, and musicians Augusto Dias and João Fernandes. Within months, Nunes had opened up a woodworking shop in Honolulu, employing Dias and Santo. And soon ads were listed in local newspapers offering their products, including machetes. The design of their instruments began to change. Machettes traditionally had metal strings and were tuned to open G, meaning that when the strings were strummed open without being fretted, they played a G chord. At some point in the 1880s, that design was changed to four gut strings from sheep or cats, and the tuning was changed to the now famous My Dog Has Fleas, G-C-E-A, and open C tuning. Another important change, machettes were now made with wood from the Hawaiian koa tree, famous for its durability, beauty, and rich tonal qualities. Nunes is recognized as the first mass producer of the instrument, but it was Diaz and Fernandez who gave it the boost that would spread its popularity throughout Hawaii. They became musicians of note in Honolulu, and through their playing became acquainted with Hawaiian's royal family, including the Mary King, King David Kalakaua. The king was a music lover, and he fell in love with the machete, eventually learning to play it himself. The royal thumbs up for the instrument was a big boost, and sales started to soar. Noons, Santo, and Diaz would have a monopoly on the market for the next 30 years. Now, how did the machete come to be called the ukulele? Well, there's a lot of theories on that, and which, which tells me that they're not sure. In the Hawaiian language, ukulele means Louse or flea, uku, that jumps or dances, lele. And frankly, that's about as close as we're going to get. Over the decades, business improved for Noon, Santo, and Dias, and a few of their ukuleles still survive, and they are worth a fortune. Then in the 1890s, orders started coming in from the mainland, thanks to a group of Hawaiian musicians who played at the 1893 World's Fair Columbian Exposition in Chicago. Over the next decade, more would play at World's Fairs all over the country. But in 1915, the popularity of the instrument exploded. That year, 17 million people went to the Panama Pacific International Exposition in San Francisco, a seven-month-long fair celebrating the completion of the Panama Canal, where the Hawaiian Pavilion was one of the attractions. And the ukulele was the star of the show. By 1917, Hawaiian music was the best-selling music in the United States. By 1920, the biggest guitar makers in the U.S. mainland, companies like Martin, Gibson, and Harmony, were selling thousands of the instruments every year. Unfortunately, during the 1930s through 1960s, the instrument was virtually gone from popular music, until a strange character named Tiny Tim started singing Tiptoe Through the Tulips on Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In while strumming a ukulele. 
Go to Uncle John's. Tiny Tim with his oil locks, enormous nose, and high falsetto caused ukulele sales to, well, do nothing. He sold millions of albums, but the ukulele remained an obscure instrument. But we note there have always been devoted players and fans, especially in Hawaii, and popular ukulele clubs and festivals have sprung up all over the world. As of the last decade or so, sales have seen their first significant rise in decades, settling that a new ukulele boom could be on the horizon. And I guess this whole story strikes a chord with me, pun intended, because, well, that instrument came from the Madeira Islands to Hawaii in 1879, and only a couple years later, some of my forefathers made the same exact trip. And wouldn't you know it, over the Christmas holiday, as I was out in the garage, I stumbled upon my grandpa's instrument. And luckily for us, one of our L.A. correspondents, Mr. Donald Rose, is up visiting this Christmas holiday. He's quite good on the guitar and piano. I guess it's in his genes. His mother did teach piano at Juilliard. He's going to give us a little demonstration here of what that instrument can do. Oh, by that I mean the ukulele. There you have it. Our first effort in Radio Parallax at doing live in studio. We do want to do a bit of forward promoting for the next couple of shows. It looks as though uh, after trying to contact that blogger up in Toronto, Mr. Wen Zhao, uh, well, I've received a nice email back saying that he would be willing to speak with us on the program. Although they did ask me if it would be conducted in English. Apparently, Mr. Wen is not used to speaking publicly in English, but, uh, well, maybe we'll be the first. I hope so. Someone we know who is a master of the English language, Dr. Andy Jones, has also agreed to come visit us again, hopefully on next week's program. We're probably going to talk about uh, that controversy over the apostrophe, which I'm sure has a lot of you on the edge of your seat. And one other follow-up item, I would note that my hex that I put on the, uh, the Oakland Raiders last week, sort of hoping that uh, the, the evil Davis family would have to suffer the indignity of watching their team lose at the last minute after having their playoff hopes raised, but it turned out I didn't quite get my evil wish, <laughs> although uh, what the Raiders needed was for the Vikings to lose to Chicago, which happened, and for the Steelers to lose to the Ravens, which happened. They also needed the Texans to beat the Titans, which did not happen. Thus it was late in the game, Coach Gruden knew that there was no possibility that Oakland would, could win the game. So it was, with seconds on the clock, and down by one point, Gruden elected to go for the two-point conversion, figuring we're either going to win it or we're going to lose it right now. We're not going to put our players through an overtime period that has no possible benefit. And wouldn't you know it, they failed and lost the game. On the other side of the bay, those San Francisco 49ers, 
a team that has become of late fun to watch, reminiscent of the old days of Joe Montana and Jerry Rice, traveled up to Seattle to play a game with the division title on the line. If you're a football fan, and we're certain that at least some of you are, you would note that if Russell Wilson has first and 10 on the 12-yard line and a minute and a half on the clock, you're going to lose, assuming you're only up by five, which the 49ers were. Especially when on the fourth down try, they got a first down at the Niners' one. They took three cracks at it and couldn't get in, so it all came down to one final play. And wouldn't you know it, the receiver failed to cross the goal line by like an inch, maybe two, but probably an inch. Anyway, the cliche about football is that it is a game of inches. That point was certainly proven last Sunday. Anyway, if you like football and you're a Bay Area person, it's probably going to be very fun the next few weeks. If you hate football, well, then you're probably waiting for me to stop talking about it. But unfortunately for you, I plan to to do that Rune Arledge interview in the top of our second segment after we take a break. But because football, it transcends the actual sport. It is sort of woven into the fabric of American life to no small degree over the past half century. Mr. McMillan, himself not a fan, likes to point out that so's professional wrestling. I'm holding in my hand a green section of the San Francisco Chronicle. I want to compliment the good people at the Chronicle for, for going back to the, uh, the green pages which for a while they discontinued because, you know, it costs a little bit more money to, to I guess, dye the, dye the newsprint green. But a lot of folks always liked it, and I'm one of them. Down on the green page I'm staring at, it said, NFL at 100. Yes, the NFL is now a century old. The title is, The Revolution Was Televised. And one of the articles is about the iconic lineup of great announcers that, uh, that have taken to the NFL over the years. People like Kurt Gowdy, Pat Summerall. Dick Enberg, and a guy that really surprised me at how bloody good he was, John Madden. When John Madden was explaining to you what was going on down in the field, well, you got a real education. He had a gift for making the complex simple, and he was always pretty amusing about how he went about it. Out of the Chronicle, Madden entertained millions with his interjections of boom and doink (laughs) throughout games. Famously terrified of flying, Madden would, (laughs) to the amusement of the nation, bus around the country to broadcast the various venues. He admitted that he flew in airplanes when he had to for the Oakland Raiders, but when he absolutely did not have to, he was not going to ever get on a plane again. My favorite these days is the combination of Chris Collingsworth and Al Michaels, who call the games on on Sunday night football. Al Michaels is just uh, an example of how things ought to be done when you're an announcer. At the top of the page, however, they have the legendary trio of Monday Night Football, Don Meredith, Frank Gifford, and the mouth himself, Howard Cosell. And in a picture below that, there's two men shaking hands, NFL Commissioner Pete Rozelle and ABC Sports President Rune Arledge shaking hands as they created a deal to create Monday Night Football, wherein uh, Meredith, Cosell, and Gifford became household names. All right, we must take a break at this juncture. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned. 